Shop owners, do you want to help your techs level up their repair and diagnostic skills? What about helping them connect with their peers so they can also grow professionally in their craft? If this is true, then the Tech Fix in-person training event is a no-brainer. On October 5th and 6th, 2023 in Nashville, Tennessee, your techs will experience in-depth training on diagnostic techniques, advanced testing skills, career and goal-setting advice, help overcoming difficult situations in the shop, and other powerful skills that most training events just won't cover. It's a two-day investment for a huge payoff for you and your team. Listeners to my show receive $100 off tickets with the code CLUES, C-L-U-E-S. Seats are limited, so if you're in, register today at techfixevent.com. Again, seats are going quick, so you've got to register today at techfixevent.com and use code CLUES for $100 off. This is Success Leaves Clues, an automotive industry podcast, and I'm your host, Thomas Hayes. So often when we think about our numbers, metrics, and KPIs, we get really caught up in the numbers themselves and end up creating some pretty rigid interpretations from them. And in the process, we fail to truly consider the people behind those numbers. And when we do this, our curiosity goes out the window and we end up bulldozing our team with what we think the problem is. And leaving them more confused and frustrated than when we started. That's why I'm really excited about this week's guest. His name's Mike DeFato. He's the owner of three successful repair shop brands across Florida and a profound experience early in Mike's career forever shaped how he uses data in business. And he's leveraged this powerful knowledge to unlock an absolute cheat code that has brought his team and shops to the next level. If you want to learn how to be a numbers whiz and a killer leader, then stay tuned. An effective online presence is a critical part of your shop's growth and profitability, which is why it only makes sense to use the company that many top performing repair shops use for managing their online presence Leads Near Me. Leads Near Me effortlessly increases your car count with a strategic combination of killer websites, high converting Google ads, traffic driving social media posts, and more. Reach them by text or call at 888-953-2379 or visit them online at leadsnearme.com. Leads Near Me effortlessly increase car count. Mike, welcome to the show. How's it going? It's going good. Happy to have you. It's going to be fun. Thank you. Mike, I've known you for a long time. I actually used to be your coach, which was super fun. Uh, you and your business partner, uh, Eric, uh, we've ha- we had some pretty fun conversations over the years. And uh, super fun to have you on the show. You're absolutely crushing it. And uh, you're one of those guys that just, man, you just innately have this wisdom about you. And uh, some of the stuff that you and I talked about before the show uh, that you're going to bring, I think is going to be really impactful. So thank you so much for your time and being on the show. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, Mike, for those that don't know you, who are you? Um, So Mike DeFato's full name. Um, Been in the auto industry since 2018. Um, 
my background, believe it or not, was uh, in medical sales and marketing. Um, did that for a while till about 2015. Um, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit and I knew one day I'd get out of it, uh, but I didn't really have the guts to do it. So in 2015, I actually won salesman in the year and hit the pinnacle of uh, my corporate career, if you want to call it, and I quit. Wow. It, I just I just wasn't satisfied. I got a huge bonus, recognition, all the plaques, all this stuff. And I was like, that's it. And I was like, I, I just don't want to do this anymore. All right. I hit the, the quote unquote pinnacle of being a salesperson. Um, and so I ended up getting into the pool industry and buying a pool business with that did uh, maintenance and repair. Did that for a few years and realized my thirst for entrepreneurship was growing. So I started looking at different businesses. One was CrossFit Gym, almost bought that. Um, and then I went to an auto repair shop one day and didn't have a very good experience. I saw there were cars everywhere. And I decided that this is a business I can do well in. Uh, they're busy. And it, I, in all due respect, didn't seem like they knew what they were doing. And I kind of saw a possible trend in there. Um, so I ended up looking for auto shops. I found one. And then I actually called uh, Eric at the time. And our daughters played softball together. So I knew him. And I knew he owned a shop. And I asked him a question. I said, hey, I'm thinking about getting an auto repair. How hard is it? And without using foul language, he said, it's effing really hard. So <laughs> I said, like okay, Eric. yeah. So let's, um, let's go take a look at it. So we went it, look at the shop. We actually got it for like $50,000. And he said, let's do it together. And I said, sure. So we bought that shop together. And as we started working, um, we started having a conversation about partnering on his existing shop on Broward. Nice, really nice shop, seven, seven lifts. And he was struggling a little, doing about 70 grand. Um, so we ended up partnering. Long story short, the first shop we bought ended up being a very poor investment. We got rid of it. But we ended up partnering that one and joining, um, joining the coaching group Shop Fix in 2018. From 2018 till now, that store has gone from $70,000 to $350,000. Um, and along the way, we started growing and finally realized we could expand. Uh, last year, we went from one shop to six shops in about four months, uh, one of them being a boat repair shop. Um, me being who I am, I bought a house in the Keys. I bought a boat, took it to a boat shop, had a bad experience and decided to buy a boat shop. So, but that's my kind of the way I think and I look at things is, is I just feel like I can revolutionize any industry or get involved in whatever I want and just be able to do it. And there's very similar parallel paths. So Eric and I uh, just said, what the heck? And we did it. And we, we actually were um, brainstorming about different expansion um, in the Keys one day doing a, a business meeting. We drove back and we're like, man, we could just do boat shops. We drove by one and we we're like, just like that one. We went back, found it online for a listing. It was for sale. Coincidentally, we put an offer in the next day and we bought it. So um, we just hit this past month. Uh, well, not just this past month, the last probably about six months, we've been doing 1.1 million in sales um, with the goal to hit about 1.5. Uh, and um, our goal is to add three more shops um, probably by the end of this year. So we're, we're, we're hoping to hit $2 million in sales probably by uh, in a per month, of course, by the uh, beginning of uh, next year. Wow. Man, I, I, I'm a little scared if you go to an airport and have that thought, like <laughs> buy an airline. Dude. That's, that's a little bit richer. <laughs> uh, I mean, boats, you're, you're getting there. Boats can be uh, pretty pricey, man. They can be. Uh, 
man, it, it's so cool to hear and, and have seen the evolution of your business. Uh, and, you know, we had Eric on and he talked through his side of things. And, and you know, like I said in the beginning, you know, you have such a, a unique angle because of your background. You've been in auto repair for five years. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, the majority of folks, you know, been in this a long time. They were a technician. They, they, it's a similar thing where, you know, most of the time technicians, you know, they're in their shop. They're like, man, this is poorly ran. You know, this is a horrible place to work. I can do this better. Um, so, you know, your reason why you looked at auto repair is similar, but the path is so different. Um, you know, sales background. What was that like? You know, you're, you're partnering up with Eric, which Eric is a, he's an incredible technician. Um, you know, partnering up with him, you having no idea about cars, him having a technician background, like, was there a lot of friction at first? Were there things that just out the gate, you're like, dude, you're wrong. Like, what did that look like? So I would say the first two years, especially the first year, I went in with the mindset of just being a sponge and I wanted to learn the industry. Um, I kind of stayed away from the back within reason. I looked at it from an analytical standpoint, but I didn't really critique about fixing cars because I just didn't know enough to, to say anything there. So my goal was to just learn the business the first year or two. As I started gaining confidence is when I started kind of putting a little bit more stamp on things. Um, and then I remember the time when he was running the back and I was running the front and he was struggling with it. And it's not that he was doing a bad job. It's just that he was looking at it from a technician standpoint. And I asked him one day and I said, can you, can you trust me and give me one crack at this? And I said, let me run the back. And he kind of gave me that look like good effing luck. <laughs> so I said, just let me do it from an analytical, analytical standpoint. And I used all the data and coached the team through data to move things along. And as crazy as it sounds, the sales went up about 30 grand within a month or two just from looking at it from a data standpoint. And I've learned this over the years that the data is what tells you what's going on a shop, not the activity. So a lot of times now I can look at the data and actually figure out exactly what's going on in a shop. I don't even have to go into it and can make my adjustments. There are some things you have to see in person, but by and by, I, I, can, I can dissect the shop and make adjustments from afar. Not that I like being from afar, but that's how much data talks to us and we don't recognize that. And I think that's where I opened to Eric's eyes is that I unemotionally run businesses. Mike, you said something a second ago that I, I want to talk through a little bit because I think that, you know, you just saying that, you know, I don't emotionally run businesses, you know, we're really talking about data and, and data doesn't have emotion. It is, or it isn't. Uh, but you said, you said something to the effect of that the data is more important than the activity as a measurement of the success of the business. What is the difference in your view between the activity and the data? What does that look like? So the, the problem with activity is, is this. And it, let's say tech comes up to you and says, the problem car comes in. It's like, oh, I've had like five of these. They're, they're, they never stop. It's five a day. And I'm like, okay. I was like, so let's go look at the numbers. And then there were maybe six in total for the month. And those comebacks, they want to change all these processes over. When at the end of the day, it was probably just one tech, QC, something basic. But what I consistently found is blanket statements over emotional um, activities that happen in the shop. So 
this would happen a lot with our lead tech. You'd come in and want to change things. And I'd say, okay, let's look at the data. What is it telling us? And the problem is when you're in the moment and the activities are trigger emotional response to make change because it influences them in the moment of time. The beauty of being outside in is the emotions of the frustration of the day don't influence how you look at it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's huge. When you would meet with a technician or an advisor or anyone else that, that's giving one of these blanket statements or not performing well or whatever, and you are coming at them with data and, and really showing them how to unemotionally view the performance or view the issue, did you get a lot of pushback? Was that something that was hard to get them to trust? That takes leadership and coaching beyond the data. So that takes conversation. Um, you can't just slap data in front of somebody. You have to have the conversation with it. So they would bring me this information and I would have conversations. And so I'm, I'm an awareness coach. I don't tell people what to do. So I'll say, okay. I said, you have this issue. And, and I was like, so that one person or that one incident, is like all these other customers are happy. I was like, so you want to change everything we're doing for that one customer? And you're like, no. Well, I'm like, okay. So what do you want to do? It's like, uh, and then they would just fumble, right? So it was kind of humorous as when you, to me, when you make them aware of how they're thinking is when they start to, to appreciate what you're saying because you put it in perspective. So you, you, there's, you're sitting there and I'm like, you're making as much money as you've ever made and you want to adjust your pocketbook for that one customer. When those situations happen on top of that is that not only it takes it in the beginning, but once you get your, your leadership team on board, the conversations just dissipate because there just becomes a trust factor. So you don't have to do it anymore once you get your number one on board. You get your one leader and then you bring in new people and there's a trust factor that goes top down. So right now I was actually telling, um, I don't know if it was Eric or Chris and I said, it's very interesting. Or maybe it was even when I was coaching somebody. I was like, the unique thing is that everybody's fighting implementation and processes when they're dealing with existing people. We don't have any of those problems anymore because now that we're established, all the new people come in and that's just how we do it on Tuesday. Yeah. It's really striking to me that, you know, you took that, that initial period to really observe what the heck was happening. And then you built these data sets, which I want to talk through in a second. Practically, what are the data points that you most effectively use? Well, we'll get there in a second, but you, you took that data and then instead of coaching emotionally or, you know, trying to, uh, you know, have someone have an emotional response to change, you really led them there through their own behavior, which is shown through the data or the customer's behavior shown through the data, things like that. That's such a unique angle that we really don't hear a lot about. And, and I'm really curious where, where did you come up with that way of managing? Was that something from your past, your childhood? I think your dad was an entrepreneur. Where did that come from? Because that, that's a very specific skill. You know, so I remember it was a project I had. I want to say this was like probably back in 2007. And my manager asked me to dissect what's going on. We, we called on a bunch of pharmacies throughout the, the country. I mean, we're talking 15,000. And I spent probably two weeks just dissecting, dissecting, dissecting. And I came up with all this data. And she said to me, what's the story? And I'm like, what do you mean? I was like, well, there's a story behind the data. What is it telling you? And I didn't know. 
So I spent another week just trying to figure out what's the story. So when you have to take, it was no joke, this was probably a million lines of data that I had to present to people in two or three pages to say, what is it telling you? So from that day forward, I understood that there's storytelling going on. And every single time I would look at data, I would say, what's the story behind it? And, and that's where it, I want to say it probably morphed because I never looked at it that way. And from that point forward, data became a conversation and it wasn't numbers anymore. When you're, when you're looking at that data, you're looking at the raw data. And, and, and back when you were at the pharmaceutical firm, million lines of data, like that's just, I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's, you know, infinitely more than we'd have in an auto repair shop. So it makes sense to me that because you were given that, you know, gauntlet to work through you, you, you know, it, it was an easy translation for you, but in the moment, how did you learn to interpret that in a way that, you know, someone, some executive or whoever you're presenting to could understand it? How did you create a conversation from the data? So what you have to do is co find common pieces of information, combine them, and then look for trending within it. So in this particular example, the outcome was I had data over two years that I had to analyze. And what I realized in this particular instance was we were selling to certain customers and then the sales would fall off. And then we were picking up other customers. The data high level was telling us that this, the business was growing. But what they didn't realize was out of that million lines, we had all these stores and some stores were dropping off and some stores were picking up. The picking up were covering the drop off. So what I did is I found once these stores dropped off, I was able to split them and present them what I called the churn effect. It's like, if we want to grow, we got to stop the losses, right? Because we're, having, we're spending all this time and money to make up for it. And, and this is why the, the, when it comes to retention um, on the, the, the uh, repair side, is such an easy conversation for me. It's like, everybody's so focused on new customers when I'm always focused on lost customers or existing. Because we don't realize that if we go spend all that money on new and we don't protect the existing, we're just going to flatline or we're going to have to spend more to make up for it. It's the same concept. So once I started realizing this, and you would look at different ways to do it, you know, whether it was the 80-20 rule, I'd take that data, I'd do 80-20 rule, which you'd find all these pharmacies that would make up for these. And you just start learning these little concepts and you look at it and you start with this high level. You know how to use common factors and then you break it down to a bottom and you just look for data uh, trends and then the trends take you to the next point. And what, I, what I've learned is, and I didn't know why I did this, the, the Road Less Stupid book always makes you ask a lot of questions. They don't always have answers to them. And looking at data, the problem that everybody has is they want to look at a data point and expect to tell you exactly what to do. And it doesn't. It just takes you to the next question. And eventually it will take you to the question. It may not even get you to the answer, but it might get you to the right question that you go into the shop then with intent and can figure out what the answer is. When you were learning how to do this, uh, and actually let's take one step further back. Like, did you go to business school? Like, was there some base knowledge you had going into this or is this a concept that you really learned in the moment in that situation? So I did go to college. I got a marketing degree. I don't even know how I've passed. I pretty much partied my way through it just in full transparency. Yeah, I have the same um, way in my degree, man. So it's a piece of paper that's on my wall and it got me my first job. 
that being said, <clears throat> I was just thrown a task one day. Right. And I just liked it. There was, and I got no direction whatsoever. I, I learned how to do pivot tables. Um, I learned, and I just, I honestly just made it up, right? It's one of those things when a technician says, can you fix it? And there, does it have a steering wheel? Sure, I'll figure it out. That's the way I was. Somehow with Excel and data, my mind was just like, it has a steering wheel and I'll just fix it. Did you find in that initial project, you struggled with bias? What I mean by that is when I've been doing data projects or research or whatever, sometimes you fall into the, and it's very natural, the bias of thinking, I know what this data is going to say. And then you run into this problem of the risk of making the data tell the story you assume. Did you struggle with that? And if you did, how did you overcome that? So it's funny that when I think back on it, I didn't because I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> you had I, nothing to, to tell. Yeah. yeah. I, I had no idea what I was looking for, what I was doing. And I think that's, I, I went through down so many rabbit holes trying to figure out what I was even doing with this. And they gave me a very open window of just tell me what you find. And I have no idea why they didn't gave me the leeway to do it. Because if you think about it in hindsight, it was a very inefficient exercise for time. I spent probably almost a month doing it because I was so lost. Now, if you gave me that million dollars a day, a million lines of data, I could probably do it in one to two days. It took me almost a month to probably figure out what the story was because I just didn't know what I was doing. Was there a certain point in that specific project that it just clicked or was it just a series of slow evolutions of understanding? Probably the biggest click was when my boss said, what's the story? And I never thought of it that way. I was just looking at a bunch of data trying to figure it out. And she's like, you have to have a story. So the, the story started at the top with a higher piece of data. And then I chipped away till I got to the actual direction that it was telling you, right? Because I had to go in there with a million lines of data. I had to get compress it. Then I had to tell the first story so they could even comprehend the concept. And then I had to get all the way to the bottom. So the takeaway, the action items were what? And I had to do this in like two pages. And, and when you presented it, I'm just curious, like what was the reception? I mean, it was great. I mean, it was just, they hadn't really thought about that concept about the churn effect of their business because everything was great. We were growing so fast. It was easy. When you're in a growth mode and everything's coming to you, you don't look at the losses. Right. And it hides everything and nobody even thought about it before. So now fast forwarding to, you know, you're in the shop. You spent the time to really understand the business and now you've, you know, really built some frameworks for data. Walk us through some of those. Like what are some of the data points that consistently, you know, give you the store you need to be able to improve a shop? So I don't know if I simplify it too much because I see it with ease. So I I, I might say this too simply and you can you can ask me more clarity. Um so a lot of people look at ARO, they're like, oh, it's, it's where I want it to be. Quotes, oh, it's where I want it to be, right? Or it's not. To me, that's just the first question, right? So when I see a piece of data and I see an ARO, at, say, let's say somebody wants it to be 500 and I see it's 500. I'm like, great, but I will never stop looking at the quotes, close ratio. And then that's my first piece. And then I jump down to the text and the advisor, right? And then I start asking questions. If I see you know, uh, one tech that's doing, say he's doing $1,000 in, in, in uh, ARO and the other guy's doing 250 
or, or whatever the number is, right? Well, I'm, that's great that your average is good, but you're letting one guy carry the other. You still have a problem, right? And I see it all the time. So one of the biggest things that when I see, so when I go into my client's data is I look that every single text quote and ARO should be plus or minus, say, 50 bucks. If you look at ours, it's just like every single one of them. I mean, we just, we won't even keep them on board if we can't, if they can't all mimic each other within reason. So when I see that in a lot of people, they look at the high level and they're not looking at the, the, the bottom. There's actually still a story in there that's feeding it that they could do that much better. You know, and, and like for a classic one is, Aero is great, but then they have a GS that's just burning through cars. And, but they think it's fine because their Aero is great, you know, or their quotes stink for the same GS, right? There's so many things that people don't see that, that I've continually found that mask things to make them feel like they're doing okay. And then the bad month happens and they didn't realize that they, that now they have to react to that situation. So when you're seeing it in your shop or you're, you're talking with another shop owner and helping them, well, I guess in your shop, you know, they're, they're very used to the way that you're looking at the data. So, you know, maybe let's talk about uh, another shop owner who may not be familiar with this concept of not just looking at the top line number, but really digging into the specifics to create the story based on the data. Is that something that, that most people pick up pretty easily or, or is it a real challenge? It's a, it's a very big challenge. And I think, I think it's just the lack of time that people want to invest in the variables that direct the information. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, hundred percent. If we think about how most people start shops, you know, it is a brilliant technician who's wildly gifted, but as I, you know, whenever I talk to shop owners, that gifting is very spatial. It's, you know, uh, very engineering minded, but sometimes, you know, the numbers can be quite hard. I, I do think that there is a lot of crossover in some of the diagnostic ability, things like that. So how do you bring someone who doesn't yet know how to think that way into being, being able to do that and really, frankly, caring about those numbers and finding value in them? The first answer was pay plans. If you devise a pay plan around what they care about, it does correct it, right? So, and we have the pay plans, but here's the thing. Once you have the pay plan, then you have to coach them how to improve on their pay through the pay plan. So it doesn't help if you just make a pay plan and they just make the money. Now you could teach them how to make more through the pay plan. So I always look at every pay plan and, and align behavior, the pay to the behavior that I'm looking for. So our lead tech, for example, I'll actually, I could tell you a quick story with our manager. I went in there and this is now, you know, I used to look at it every day. Now I trail a couple of days looking at Shop Rocket, and um, I called my manager and I said, hey, I was like, Jonathan's ARO and his quotes are dropping again. And he goes, I saw three days ago. We got it. We're good. And I said, okay. And then it was up 500 bucks within two days. Right. So they're catching these things because I spent some time building awareness around it. So I, I will actually sit with them, look at the shop, the, the tracker. I don't tell them what I'm seeing because I'm, I'm already seeing it. I was like, so what do you guys see? And I'll let them talk to me until they get it. And so I just build awareness. And I'm like, hey, guys, your ARO's low. What's going on here? I was like, what do you think's happening? And then they'll come up 
they'll start looking at, looking at, looking. And then once they figure it out, now that I've gotten them to do it, they own it. That style of coaching makes a ton of sense to me when you're dealing with employees. I'm curious when you try to teach another shop owner how to do that with their team. Um, you said earlier that that getting people to think this way and really dig into the details um, is a struggle. How do you bring someone through that journey you had without you know spending a month of looking through a million lines of data? How do you get them to start caring about those numbers and seeing the story? Did you know that some web design companies use the same wording across all their client sites? Unfortunately, this common practice is noted by Google as plagiarism, which will cause your site to be ranked lower. That's why it's critical that whoever makes your shop's website knows better. That's why so many top shops trust leads near me to create and manage their shop's websites. As Google certified partners, they know how to make a top ranking website from an insider's perspective. Get a free site analysis by visiting leadsnearme.com or calling 888-953-2379. Leads Near Me, effortlessly increase car count. You know, it's, it's tough. I think that the owner has to want to succeed and then realize that they're going to have to do some things differently and get uncomfortable. What does that look like? So I'll point out that exact conversation I just had where we'll look at their arrow and I'm like, Hey, it's good. And then I'll point out to them the whole, you know, whether it's the GS, the writer, and then I'll point out things like, Hey, and I, I literally did this. I'll be like, Hey, what's going on with uh, Cody here? And they're like, how'd you know? And I'm like, I, the numbers told me. It's like, I could see the two advisors. And then I said, let me ask you this question. Is he struggling with confidence on a certain tech? And like, how'd you know that? I was like, I could just tell. It's like, there's something going on here. One advisor strong enough to overcome your tech's inadequacies, but the other guy isn't. So I was like, it's, it's, it's one of the two. And they just have to learn to, to ask themselves the question. The problem that I see is that they're in the day-to-day too much. And they're sitting there saying, oh, but I'm working on Mr. You know, this tech. I'm working on that advisor. They're getting better. But the data says otherwise. So my biggest thing is I'm telling them, it's like, it's okay that if you want to coach it, but you got to put a timestamp on it. You got to put a window on that period of time because the data, if it data keeps talking to you over and over again, how long are you going to do this for? You said something uh, earlier in that statement that, that really struck out to me. And on the surface, it sounds very harsh. You, you said something to the effect of that, you know, the owner has to want to be successful. You know, I, I think anybody in business or anybody in life will say verbally, I want to be successful. When when you're saying that about an owner, what does that mean? What are you actually looking for? So I would think that they have to define what they consider success and what they want, what how they value their time. So you can have a guy that wants to be successful, and let's say they do 200 grand. 300 grand and they're in the business all the time. And I have, so I'll tell you one right now. We just took on a new client. I had a call with him. He's new wildly shop successful. owner you're coaching. Yes. Wildly successful. He's netting well over 600 grand. He's killing it. Okay. He's successful, quote unquote. Now he has acknowledged that he's failing because the only reason it's succeeding is because he's muscling the business. He can't find the right dad guy. He can't 
leave the shop. So is success about what you financially make or is it about how the business is performed without you? Right? There's all these little variables that define success. So success can be 30 to 100 grand. It could be 100 and 200. It could be whatever you want. But then there's how is the business running with or without you as an operator? So there's so many variables to that. So that person has to decide in this instance, for example, that they want to change their definition of success. And that's that the business is going to run without them, which means they are going to have to take certain steps. And I looked at them in the eye and I said, are you okay with making less net in order for this business to run without you? He cringed, but he knew the answer was going to be, I'm going to have to let some things go and I'm going to have to make more net short term so I can multiply my time and be able to do the things he wants to do. And that control issue is a big issue, a big, a big problem with helping people understand the definition of success. Because now you take another variable of is six, if a store runs without them, and this is a whole another discussion about people's identity. If the store runs without them, they lose that feeling of success on a day-to-day basis because they're not driving it. And that one's probably a whole another podcast. I mean, actually, identity is such a big deal as an owner or as an employee or a you know, parent, whatever your role is. And I, and I do think that it is tied to, you know, what you're talking about with, you know, being willing to really be honest with yourself about how you measure success and then having the willingness because you have that clarity of looking at the data and being able to coach through. Mm -hmm. But something that I think I do want to talk through, you mentioned, you know, before we started the episode is that, you know, there's this pervasive lie that says, if I didn't do it myself as the owner, that I am lazy. And I think that is such a huge identity thing, which can cause an owner to really be looking at the wrong things. Let's talk that out a little bit. So I I have asked this question to a lot of owners um, that I deal with. And I said, I said, if you made $500,000 on your business and you had to spend all your time there, how would you feel if I told you you could make three, but you could have all your time back? What does that mean to you? And they're like, I'd probably take the three if I got all my time. I was like, so why don't we do it? But they, 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 the grasping that is a big, big challenge. Um, I don't know. And I, I do find that it's guilt. And they, and they struggle with the first, let me step back. So the first time I had this conversation with Eric and I, I quasi kicked him out of the shop, I could tell he was extremely frustrated, did not know what to do with his time. And he had always been there and I, I know it was stripped away from him. And I kept talking to him about the difference between being an owner operator, or, or let me phrase, being a tech to an operator, to an owner-operator, to a true investor. In each of those phases, you have to start separating things. And one of the ways I'm trying to help people look at it differently is to split their personality, where they segue time for being an operator, the owner, and then being an investor, which means you have to do things that are uncomfortable. Um, and, And I keep finding guys drawing themselves back in. And they just don't know what to do with themselves if they aren't in the day-to-day operation. Um, and I don't know if that society has guilted them into that. But the way I look at it is, think about this. Uh, what feels better to, to be able to rule? That's not the right word, it was rule. But 
to be able to manage from afar and high and be able to do it more to others to allow yourself, because I think what everybody underestimates is that everybody in these in this group or that's in the auto repair is underestimating their talent and they're only marrying it to their operation instead of spreading it amongst others and other opportunities that they can do. There are so many talented people. And if you only do a one for one exchange, you're not taking your time to do other things that you could be doing with it. Does that, does that all make sense? Yeah. Makes total sense. When you're helping someone really with that identity shift. And I think it is a shift and, and really because of why so many of us go into auto repair, I think the investor hat is really unusual uh, because we go into it because we have a passion for cars. We, ha- we have you know really deep ties to the industry itself where an investor really doesn't have as much connection to what their investment is uh, and certainly you should invest in things that you're passionate about, but there's an objectivity that says, Hey, if this investment's working or not, uh, is going to dictate my actions quite a bit. When you're trying to help people make that shift, what are some things that you have to overcome and how do you walk someone through those? Um, the biggest thing is explaining to them that they have an identity issue to start. A lot of them don't know it exists. So that's phase one. Phase one is helping them realize that if they're not a mechanic anymore, that they feel or you don't feel inadequate because they spend so much time being so good at that. And it hurts to say, you got to stop doing it. So it takes a shift in things you do. So I remember when I was trying to get Eric out and I actually, number one is he, he would always come in in shorts and a t-shirt. And I said, Eric, you've got to start wearing slacks and a button down. And he hates it. He literally tells me his skin crawls when he wears it. I remember and, those conversations. Yes. <laughs> and I said, the reason you have to do it is that when you walk into the shop, people are going to look at you differently. You're not going to be able to work on cars. It's going to force you to create new behavior. And to this day, he still struggles with it. But his mindset isn't there. I think he got the concept. But I still remember that first day he showed up in slacks in a, in a, in a button-down shirt. And you would have thought, like he was there and I, I don't even know how to explain it. I just saw the look in his face that he was embarrassed to be wearing it. Wow. And I don't know why, because I can't relate to that. And I almost threw a jab at him, but I, I was nice to him that day. <laughs> and I know he just hates it. He literally feels like he looks like a clown. But that being said, he's gotten over that hump. Whatever it happened, I don't know if it was just not being there all the time, you know, and he still struggled to sell his box. You know, I, I made the joke. I actually put it on offer up and said, if you don't come and get it, I'm going to sell it. So, and I, cause I was just trying to fully shift that you're not a technician anymore. How long did it take him to make that shift? Um, the full, full shift. I think it probably was through COVID in 20 because we, he almost went back to work as an advisor. We almost had him do stuff cause things were a little bit wavy and things like that. And, um, as a technician, no, he was done with that. And, and he did pretty well. I was, I was pretty hard on him when, when it comes to it. I did not let him, I did not flinch at letting him come in and do things. Um, I think if I wasn't there, it would have been tougher. I still remember he, this was my, fi- probably my favorite story when I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so much harder than I thought. 
So we had this uh, R8 and our tech was screwing something up. I knew Eric could fix it. And we had it there for months. I mean, it was, who knew, I don't even remember what the problem was. And he calls me one day and I kept telling him, I said, listen, these guys are going to screw up and it's part of the investment to let our people grow. Right. And I would say this over and over again, these failures are an investment, right? They're costing us money, but they're going to grow from it. And one day they're going to be able to take the lead for us and operate on our own. He calls me one day in full frustration. He goes, how long are we going to invest in these guys? (laughs) <laughs> and it was just that sounds like Eric pure slap in the face as to I knew what he was saying. And I'm like, I'm like, just we'll get there, you know, and he just he was so frustrated. And he he told me, he's like, I'm just going to go in and fix it. I'm just going to do it myself. And I said, no, you're not. I was like, I'm going to figure it out and we're going to get through it. So I remember that was a, a big eye opener for me on how much it was a struggle for him. We've really talked about some ways that those shifts in mindset can happen. We've talked about when that happens, that there is more of a drive, I think would be the right way to put it, to now look at the numbers as an investor, as a high-level owner, and really be able to grow the shop through that uh, and be able to coach your team. But obviously, if you're going to get out of the day-to-day to have the brain space to be able to do that, You've got to build a great team under you. And I think that's something that so many people struggle with, especially if they they have this lie that says, if I'm not doing it, I'm being lazy. Practically, how do you build that team? How did you do it? I would say in the beginning, we had to coach, teach, coach, teach, hire, teach. And that's a process at Prestige. That was the first shot. Um, we We did it organically. And I know a lot of people are doing that. And you go into it thinking you just, that's just the way it is. And, and it's a challenge um, because you don't know any better until you know better, right? Your limited belief is that these are the people in the market. You hire them, you coach them, you teach them, and then they eventually take over. Well, t- last year when we bought the shops and we hired people, and I think I'm a magician like everybody else does with people. We think we could just go there and wave our wand and they're going to be good. Well, when you go from one to six shops, your mindset changes a little and you don't have the time anymore. So we made some bad hires. Um, we had one guy we caught stealing. We had another guy that was doing this because we couldn't be there enough. And we realized that we had to take a different approach. For one, I had to get better at recruiting. I, I actually, you know, it's funny on a chat the other day, people were talking about recruiting. They're like, oh, you know, I, I do this and this. I said, guys, I'll be honest with you. I send 500 messages a month to, uh, people for jobs. I have a recruiter we just hired. Oh, she's a, she was a part-time, like an ops person. We're actually in the midst of a conversation to pay a person $130,000 as a full-time nationwide recruiter for us because we've understood the value of it. What I've realized was I have to spend a ton of time interviewing so I actually could figure out what that person started to look like. I always use the comparison. When you go buy a house, you don't go just buy one house and close on it. You go look at about 10 to 15 to 20. Because once you do that, you know what you're looking for. So I stopped impulse hiring and because I made too many mistakes. And I spent a lot of time figuring out what that person looks like. I can go in an interview in five minutes, almost tell if that's the person now. But it took a lot of repetition and a lot of looking at resumes, a lot of interviews. Like I can almost tell when I look at a resume now with 80% certainty the quality of that person. 
right? And there's little tricks, believe it or not. I tell people a great resume is usually a shitty employee because they're interviewing all the time and the resume looks perfect, right? Especially with techs. Advisors are a little tricky, right? Dealer advisors are a little rougher than potentially independent because they don't know how to manage the chaos of day-to-day, right, that we deal with. So there's all these little things I look for, you know, how long they're employed, who they're employed with. Um, the, the point is it takes a lot of investing of your time to get educated. It, it's no different than the data, right? These people that are out there, you have to invest to learn in order to figure out how to hire better because each hire mistake costs you a very long time to recover from. The less mistakes you make in hiring and the higher quality you hire, the better your outcome is long-term and the faster you peel off time that you get back. So um, quick example I'll give you is um, that hire we made that was poor at one store that was stealing. When we replaced him, the store went from about 70 grand to 110 and even to 130 in less than 60 days. It it wasn't the market. It was the people, right? And then um, that other story I, I had mentioned was you know, we had a, uh, I had a client that I finally convinced them to remove a manager. And once they removed the manager, their, their sales went up like $150,000. It's a big diesel shop, but the manager was clogging the whole store. And I asked him this question. I was like, so you made one change. You didn't hire or fire. You didn't hire or fire one other employee, but this one guy. And they're like, yep. And I was like, do you guys see how much an employee can move the needle positively or negatively? But I find that we are not, none of us are spending the time that's needed. It's a very high level of investment that's needed to really get good at, at employees. And we were forced to do it. Like we were forced to do it. I, I look back and if I had to do it again, I would have done all of this in advance, like getting the recruiter and all this stuff. We just didn't know any better. What you're saying is very interesting because, I mean, I talk to owners all the time and I'm constantly hearing, I can't find good people. I can't find good people. The only people applying for my jobs are underskilled. And, and then there's this, you know, idea that, man, I, I've got to just, you know, I've got to just hire the, the low level guy and train them up. But it sounds like from what you're saying that you've really found a way to find these really high level people. It sounds like it is a significant investment of time. Um, but it does sound like that by finding these high level people, you are probably spending a lot less time in training. Uh, there's less mistakes being made. So, you know, did you, did you initially, when you started, you know, really getting into hiring, find that, man, all I'm getting is these, you know, lower level, uh, uh, lower level applicants. Like how did that evolution happen? Cause that's quite a shift from what most people are doing. So I'd say it's twofold. And, and to go back on that one employee, just to give perspective, when I say we trained the guy for like three days and he increased the sales that much, he was that good. That's how big of a difference it could be. What I would say is it's twofold. One is I think that the, the, one of the things that everybody underestimates is about getting good employees. And I started to know this at our main shop and is how attractive they're making themselves for people. So when somebody comes in to interview, and, and I actually did, a uh, in my tribe time, I did this breakout. I said, what you guys are underestimating is if somebody walks in a shop and they see the outside of the shop, they see the inside of the shop, they see how you're dressed, your people are dressed, how the shop looks. Every single time you, well, somebody walks in, you're positively or negatively affecting your ability to hire them. And I was like, when you walk up to them and how you shake their hand, how, whether you talk with confidence and how you converse with them is improving 
or hurting your odds of hiring every single time. And when they're looking at you from afar on Google, how does the shop look on the outside? How do the reviews look? All these things are a massive impact on whether you can attract talent, right? And what's your reputation in, in the neighborhood and things like that. So when people say that, a lot of times they don't take the first step. Is it, are they making themselves attractive enough, right? So if you're, if you're out there looking for the hottest woman on the market and you don't put on your best duds, you don't have a shot, right? And if you're not in shape, you don't have the best shot. There's a lot of work to getting these people and you have to make yourself attractive. That's the first step that underestimated, right? They want to come to a place that they want to be there. And I, and I tell the employees all the time, which are why we're huge in culture, is that people spend more time at work than they do with their, their wives and kids. You have to create an attractive environment for them. So if you don't have even the one-on-one stuff of benefits and vacation time, you're not in the market, right? Let alone does your shop look the right. So these are little variables that even before you have the first conversation, you have to have these little all these checks marked off before you can even attract that person. And that's just part one. Part two would be, <clears throat> yes, we can get them. But I'll also say what everybody struggles with is this. They go hire that person, they fill the spot, and they think they're done. They stop, and they're like, wow, I'm done. They wipe their hands clean, and they're like, now we can go to work. We hire a lot of times, and if we don't get the right person and we need them, we're okay with putting it in, but you know what we do? We go right back to try to upgrade them. And that's part of the problem is nobody's spending time upgrading. We sit in a meeting every week, go over employees, and we say, are we good? Yes or no? And we'll go through them. And if we find a guy who's underperforming, we, we do a job opening and we start recruiting for him. And we say, we're not in a rush because we got him filled, but we're going to go look. If say they're, we call him a B player, if we can go to a B plus or an A minus, we're going to go find him. Right. And, and it's unfortunate. This is a tough thing I, I've had to communicate to people is this. When you hire an employee, <clears throat> when you hire him at that point in time, and this is how I've got over the mental hurdle of moving on from employees, especially when they're good, right? How many times have people had to replace good employees? And I had one recently and it really hurt. Luckily he quit before I fired him. Super nice guy, phenomenal with employees. I mean, I'm sorry, not employees, customers. And <clears throat> the problem was he spent so much time with them, he couldn't sell. His, his, his app, we actually measure his time with customers on the phone and things like that. And, and there's no wonder he couldn't get to uh, it's probably 75% of what the other advisor could do is ARO is lower, everything. But what I realized is that I hired him to pay him a rate trading for his time to perform in my shop. And if they don't meet what I hired him for, then therefore he's not fulfilling the contract with me anymore. And I have to go find somebody else, right? It's no different. I always compare it. I tell people I compare it to the NFL running backs, right? They get a three to five year window. The second their numbers go down, they get another one. And I know that sounds harsh, but that's what I hired these people to do. If they don't fulfill their contract, unfortunately, I have to move on to the next. A few minutes ago when I was asking the question, you know, I was mentioning low level, high level. It's really qualified, unqualified. It's they have the ability or they don't. When you are finding after the hire that, man, they don't have the ability or the drive isn't there or whatever the issue is where they're just not meeting the standard. I mean, is it a, you know all right, they're not meeting the standard. Let me get the ad out. As soon as I got the hire, hey, dude, you're out. Or is there a period where you are trying to coach and trying to get them? Are you giving them the understanding of, hey, you know, you're here. I need you here. If we can't get here, 
you know, this isn't going to work. Like, what does that look like practically? So what I would say, because you're, you're right, I, I said it in a very black and white way, and there's, there's variables within it. So the extreme is, and this has happened, we hire a guy, and I've been hoodwinked before on uh, an interview, right? And this guy, he said all the right things. It's like literally he took my, somebody gave him my playbook of how to get hired by me. And we brought him in. And then when we, we started, he was hor- horrible. And we're like, what the heck's going on? And literally couldn't sell anything past an oil change. He took on 40 tickets and couldn't do anything with them. And we sat him down, talked to him, kept getting worse. And so we just cut ties really quick. Now that's not the norm. The norm is you bring a guy in and let's use that guy. I just told you, super nice guy, was great with customers. And I coached him on all the things that he wasn't meeting expectations. And I was very, very clear with him about what we're looking for. And I told him, I said, you're phenomenal customers. Um, You represent us very well. Uh, But I will tell you that based on this pay plan, you're going to struggle to make money unless you can make these adjustments. And I said, I'm not telling you to not do the things you're good at. I'm just telling you to do them more concisely. And by the time he actually ended up leaving us, he told us, he said, Mike, I appreciate everything you've done. I was like, you coached me as well as you could but I fully understand that the person I am does not fit in the role you have, right? So we took the time with him. He had the ability, but what I have found is certain people with certain traits cannot overcome them as much as you coach them. Um, so that's the, very, that's the one where I think everybody struggles with when they do a good job and not a great job. And the problem is everybody sits on those great, the good jobs and don't go to the great guy. Uh, when it comes to somebody that's clearly not capable, you still, you will put time in but I kind of have a, and it depends on the, the variables. <clears throat> I tell my guys, if they want to get rid of somebody, have they taken these steps, right? We have certain steps that they have to take. And then if we talk about them more than three times, I'm like, guys, you got to get rid of them. And it's a certain type of conversation, right? That you have. And, and here's the gut, the gut feel that most have. Everybody knows when they need to move on. Our instincts are very good. And a lot of people underestimate them and keep, either feeling bad or thinking they can overcome it when in all reality they know that you know they can't and Aaron made a great example sometimes we find out we hire threes thinking we can make them sevens and they're never going to be better than a four or five on a scale of one to ten and we spend way too much time probably on these threes that we thought were fives trying to get into sevens and it's just not going to happen and and you've got to be able to move on you know my rule of thumb is and, and I tell my clients this all the time I say guys go let somebody else suffer to bring those three to sevens. Let somebody else train them and then go hire them from them. How do you have that conversation when you're doing the separation? Because, you know, if you are, if you are giving them a fair chance and you're trying to give them coaching and training and, you know, you're realizing, Hey, it doesn't work. You know, if you're churning through employees like crazy, a, that's obviously a hiring issue, but you know, if you also have these very high standards, you know, there's a possibility of creating a reputation in the community. How do you have that conversation in a fair way? So what I would say is by the time the conversation happens, you don't have to have that conversation because they already know. So you, you, so I say it because I, my experience and in, in, in our patterns or, or however you want to uh, view it, I, I make it sound very cold in a sense and very black and white. And it's not, we care deeply about our employees Every single person knows how important they are, but I think that they all know when they're not pulling their weight that they're bringing the team down and they know deep down inside. We create a culture expectation and 
some of it is just how they enjoy their job, but a lot of it is how we perform as a team. And when somebody's not pulling their weight, they feel it in a healthy way. It's not a competitive way. They know when they're letting their, their teammates down. And so it becomes, a, it, the conversation isn't at, as much like, hey, you're, you're not good at this job. We need to get rid of you. It's more, we coached you. We gave you the parameters. You're, we, month after month, you're seeing you're not performing well enough. And we will politely say, guys, or to, to this person, it may be in your best interest to find something else. Because here's the other thing too. The pay plan itself corrects a lot of things because they don't make the money they need to make. So the only time you get in trouble on these is when you have salaries. But if everybody's pay plan is around it, you know, we had a tech, he literally came up to us and said, he's at a Euro shop. He's kind of like a GS slash C. And he's like, he's like, I love working here, but I can't make money because I can't work fast enough. He was like, you know what? You're a good employee. We actually have our domestic shops we can move to move you to, and we believe you can turn. He's only getting 20, right? Because we we haven't we have enough lists of that shop we can handle a guy with 20 hours. I hate a 20 hour tech, but it's like you probably get 30 at that shop, and we have some open lifts. Is that, is that of interest? Right? Not a terrible tech, he's just not performing. So we can give him other opportunities. Yeah, I think that what you're really bringing to the table for those listening is a way that you can really fulfill your fiduciary responsibility to your business, to your other partners, to the community, to your other teammates that are really pulling, um, and be kind and fair and honest with those that just aren't a good fit. Yep. And I think so often owners, especially if they're in it day to day, they're working side by side with, with their employees, it's really a struggle for those. And so I, I like what you brought because I think it creates an opportunity for those listening to really be able to build a good culture that is driven around performance, but we're still executing in a way that's, that's fair and kind. So let me add one more thing. And this is a huge aspect that everybody underestimates and it clicked one time. So I'll, I'll tell you the one story. And this is a, a, a thing um, we had uh, when we were in the very beginning. It was we had a, a writer manager and two techs. OK, we were doing one hundred thousand dollars. These guys were studs. One of them was a diva and he was taking advantage of us. And you probably might remember this story. I mean, this guy was so talented, right? And we went on for a long time, afraid to lose him. A very long time. Because when you have a higher performer and you lose him, it hurts. We, we lived in fear of this guy probably, it could have been three to six months. I don't remember, but it felt like an eternity. We finally got the guts to move on from him. You know what our other tech said to us? He said, I'm glad you guys finally did it. I can't believe you let him take advantage of you in the shop for this long. Wow. So when he said that, my whole perspective changed on trying to keep on lesser employees. I realized that if I keep on lesser employees, and let's say you have a shop of 10, the other nine will lose respect for you for catering to one person out of the 10 when they're all performing. And have you ever noticed, and, and everybody can ask themselves as they listen to this, if you took your time and you, and, you, and you split it up between all your employees, that you spend more time with your lesser employees than your good ones, and you take them for granted too much. And that was a hard lesson learned for me. Man, Mike, you have dropped truth bomb after truth bomb. 
And and honestly, these are things that are really uncomfortable to hear. They're things that are counterintuitive for most people from my observation. And they're things that on the surface seem mean or, you know, you don't care or whatever, but you being able to break it down in the way you did and have these revelations and share them, I really believe it's going to unlock a lot of people's potential um, to be able to really build their shops up and and create a, a fair a fair situation for everyone involved. So I'm I'm very very grateful. I have one more very important question for you. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be? Or vehicle? Doesn't have to be a car. <laughs> oh boy! And you said you, you know, like don't knew- listen to this show, so I you don't no, even I, know I this knew- is coming. No, Eric told me about this question and I forgot to prepare for it. No one prepares for it. They're always like, so I don't know. (laughs) So you got to remember, my biggest issue is that I don't really care about cars. I know. Um, That's why I'm super curious. Honestly, I really just like my truck. What kind of truck? Uh, Dodge Ram. It does what I need to do. It's, you know, it's, it's a utility type vehicle. It just does everything and it drives well. And actually the way they've made these trucks today, they drive like cars. So I'm perfectly happy with them. I mean, my thing like with a sport car is I like it for about five and a half minutes. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I'd probably just have to say, sadly, I'm happy with what I got. (laughs) Well, and, but it's so funny, everyone that gives that answer, you know, me knowing you and, and having known you for a while, that makes sense to me because you have such a practicality about you. It is so clear cut, uh, you know, even dry sometimes, but there's so much depth. You have so much depth to you. Uh, and, and I'm just, you know, again, super grateful you're on the show, man. And you, you are definitely a Dodge Ram. I love it. <laughs> awesome. All right, brother. Well, thanks again for being on the show and uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. That was my interview with Mike DeFato. I want this show to serve and impact as many people in our industry as possible. To help me in that mission, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review, and tell others about us. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at thomas at slcautopodcast.com or call 615-656-8804. Thanks so much and have a great week.